Hello again, everybody. Welcome back. I was just thinking and talking with Eric Doney a minute ago uh, about, you know, how do you introduce Phil Woods? And um, he very simply said, oh, it's, it's kind of easy. <laughs> he said, uh, the complete musician and the complete friend. And I, I really think that sums it up. Um, last night, I had a, an opportunity to sit and have a nice dinner. And uh, during the conversation, I said, Phil, was there any you know, particular part in you know, your wonderful history as a musician and a person that you felt was the you know, one period that was the most period of growth? And he said, oh, right now. Every, every day gets better. And I thought, wow, what a, what a wonderful answer. So it, it's no use in me uh, talking about the litany of people. Um, or his mark on history. I would uh, just like to introduce uh, a player who every conversation you have with him uh, is always filled with kindness and patience and a lot of laughs. And uh, every artistic thing that he does is handled with, with beauty and uh, with artistry. Ladies and gentlemen, Phil Woods. Hey, Jonathan, can you lower the lights a little bit? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, My name is... Uh... My name is Phil Woods, and next year I'll be celebrating 60 years in the business, and uh, I love the business. Yeah. It's one thing about being a musician, you never arrive, you know, it's all about the journey, it's all about getting there, which is what life should be, you know, it's about getting, you know, about just, just making the trip, you know. You never really arrive when you do, you know, that's the end, and I'm saving that for last, you know. I started playing when I was 12 years old. That would be, you know, I was born in 1931, as I told you. I'm going to be 74, but I have the body of a 73-year-old man. I just want you to know that, you know. So uh, when I was 12 years old, I discovered my uncle, my uncle Norman, was kind of a strange cat, and he had a, he had a saxophone. And at the time, he was mortally, he was, he was checking out. He was upstairs dying of cancer. I didn't, you know, I knew nothing. I was 12, and under my grandma's wicker sofa, I discovered this cat's horn, you know? Now, I must preface this by saying that at the time, I was into uh, melting lead and making soldiers. Well, it was the, you know, it's the Second World War. You probably heard of it. It was in all the papers. And I would make a, you know, to, you know, armies, armies, and paint them, and all that kind of thing, and, and to play war games. So when I saw the saxophone, I think I was said to myself, you know, if I melt this sucker down, man, <laughs> man, I can make a golden horde of warriors that'll, you know, solve all of this, this, this war business. And somebody mistook my avaricious intent for an interest in playing the saxophone. So when he checked out, when Norm left, uh, I was awarded the saxophone in his will. And man, I really was not interested in playing the saxophone. You know, I wanted to go about melting lead, making soldiers. I gave up all ideas of melting this because my mom would have killed me. But uh, I took the horn and I put it away in the closet. Left it there, went about my business of being a 12-year-old. And after about a, a month or six weeks, my mom said, uh, Philip? And when she said Philip like that, I knew, hey, something's up here. She said, don't you think you should uh, at least take a lesson on the saxophone, you know? And I said, okay, mom. You know, I couldn't say no to mom. Uh, so I got the yellow pages. 
uh, drum shop, saxophone lessons, teacher Harvey LaRose, you know. Okay, so I called up Mr. LaRose and I made an appointment for my uh, first saxophone lesson, you know. And I remember this like it was yesterday. The last thing I said to him, after I arranged the rendezvous, I said, should I bring the sax? You see, I was a real natural. <laughs> and I could hear this guy say, oh boy, have I got a winner here. And he said, young man, it would be a good idea to bring the saxophone to your first saxophone lesson? <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I thought you had to be blessed, anointed before, you know, learn to read music. I had no idea. There was no musicians in my family to speak of. And uh, I went for my first lesson, and ladies and gentlemen, my life changed right there. I mean, I went on to study at uh, Juilliard School of Music and Manhattan School of Music, and I took private lessons with Tristano, and I worked with every musician you want to name. But I never had better lessons than I had with Mr. Harvey LaRose. But, uh, anyway, Mr. LaRose, I started lessons, and, uh, you know, I got my first lesson, the Rubank, the rudimentary method book, you know, whole notes and half notes and okay, nice, you know, and Harvey, Mr. LaRose played and showed me and okay, and I went and I put the horn back in the closet, you know. And I'd go back the following week and I could play the lesson without even trying. I never, I never thought about it. You know, to me it was, you know, just pleasing mom. But Harvey, Mr. LaRose realized that I must have a fair retentive ability, I must have a decent ear, because I could, and he knew I was, I was shucking and jiving, he knew I wasn't practicing at all, but I could play the lesson. And if I'd have gotten the wrong guy in the yellow pages, you know, some, some, some teachers have the audacity to say, how dare you, you're using your ear to play music, you know. Ear, that's our best friend, here, this, is, this guy right here. I mean, anybody can put the, play their fingers, and play the notes and all that, but if you can't hear it, you can't have it, you know? And Harvey recognized that, Mr. LaRose recognized that I had something, you know? And he brought me along, he brought me. By four or five months, I was, this is, I, it was my passion. And as I say, after playing for 60 years, I, I realize now that, that I'm not a religious man, I'm not into kismet, but there is a certain thing, uh, something's going on. I, I was put here to be a saxophone player, you know what I mean? Uh, the first jazz I ever played was uh, Benny Carter. Mr. LaRose gave me a, so, uh, a booklet of uh, transcribed Benny Carter solos. That was the first he accompanied me, and I, I learned the, the Benny Carter jazz solos. It's the first I heard, of, heard about Benny Carter and the improvisational. These were not just improvising on songs. These were actually jazz, jazz tunes with, with Benny's solos. And then he gave me, one week he gave me um, a Duke Ellington piece called Mood to be Wooed. And uh, that week, my teacher, Mr. LaRose was very wise. That week Duke Ellington's band was coming to town and Johnny Hodges was playing Mood to be Wooed that season and my teacher realized that. So there we are with the, the kids, all the musical kids in my neighborhood and Johnny Hodges stepped forward and he played Mood to be Wooed. And I said, ah, that's how it goes. And that, you know, that I was really smitten by the romance of the, the lights went down to blue and it, it all looked so romantic. You know, I found out later, it's not necessarily so, but <laughs> good title for tune actually. <clears throat> and then uh, I heard my first Charlie Parker record. And that's all she wrote, pun intended. Uh, 
when I heard Bird, I mean, it, it, it all came into focus. So I wanted to continue my, I wanted to be where Charlie Parker was, is what it was. I wanted to be part of the revolution. But in those days, you didn't, you didn't go to jazz schools, man. There was no, there was no jazz schools. Well, actually, I took private lessons. I started to work. Uh, I lived in my hometown in Springfield, Massachusetts. It was about three hours from, from New York. And I had a, a friend named Hal Sarah. He was a piano player. And he was studying with Lenny Tristano. Anybody know who Tristano was? Yeah, he was the guru. He was the, the, the first uh, free jazz player. Maybe not the first, but one of the very first. Uh, Herbie Nichols and Tristano were uh, just, just blowing, you know, just playing anything. And he would interpolate uh, Robert Schumann piano pieces into his, into his jazz, you know. I mean, he was very, very, a blind cat out of Chicago. So we would go to Mr. Tristano's house, take a bus from Springfield, and then we'd take a subway out to Long Island, and then we'd get, take a bus to, to, to Mr. Tristano's house. I think the lessons were $8. And I learned that I had a lot to learn. I, I don't know if I ever was ready for what Tristano was laying down, but uh, it was a good excuse to come to New York, you know. And then we'd go back to Manhattan, and we'd get lunch at Romeo's. Uh, you know, we get spaghetti for 25 cents, and you could tell it was fresh because it was sitting in the window all day, you know what I mean? In a big pot, steaming, you know? And then we'd go to Main Stem Records and get the latest Bird, Diz, Bud, Sonny Stitt, Fats Navarro, Milt Jackson, you name it. we get all the records, you know, get about 10 pounds of records. And then if we, we'd make sure we had a dollar or two left, and then we'd go to 52nd Street, and we'd get a Coca-Cola for a dollar. And we got a, the, the waiter got to know us pretty, and we, they were very nice. Nobody ever hustled us. We'd kind of sit in the back by the drums. Maybe not the most musical, but we'd sit there till four o'clock in the morning, you know, for a dollar, two dollars tops. And we heard some of the greatest music, man, you know, the best stuff, the best stuff. And 52nd Street was popping, man. You know, New York was popping. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, one time, Mr. Tristano said, are you kids going down to 52nd Street tonight? Because he knew our, our, our habits, you know, what, we, what we'd like to do. And we said, yeah, we, yeah, why do you ask? He said, well, I'm opening for Charlie Parker. Would you like to meet him? I mean, I said to myself, I always wanted to meet God, you know what I mean? <laughs> so sure enough, we, we held back on the records that we'd have enough for three Coca-Colas, kept three bucks aside, and we went in there, and Tristano Trio, Arnold Fishkin, and Harold Granowski, they opened. Billy Bauer on guitar, I believe. It was a quartet. And uh, I think Arnold Fishkin came and got us kids and took us in the back. It wasn't a backstage, it was more of a holding area because the 52nd Street, those were, those were all speakeasies, you know. There was not, not really a stage, but there was like a curtain, you know, and the, the little holding area in the back. And we walked around back and there was Charlie Parker sitting on the floor and he had a big cherry pie. And he said, hi, kids, would you like a piece of cherry pie? And I remember saying, oh, Mr. Parker, that's my favorite kind of pie. He said, well, you sit down next to me and I'll cut you a slab, man. And he did, man, he gave me a piece of cherry pie. You know, So you might meet a whole lot of players and musicians as you go through this life thing, but you're not gonna see too many cats that can say I had a piece of pie with Charlie Parker. <laughs> so I'm going through this critical period 
I don't like my saxophone. I don't like the reed. I don't like the mouthpiece. I don't like the ligature. I don't even like the strap. I mean, all I'm doing is playing Harlem Nocturne four to five times a night. I'm not making any progress. I'm not doing any jazz dates. This is about 53, something like that, 52. I just graduated from school and did all these other things, you know. I know I'm skipping around chronologically, but you bear with me on that. And somebody said, uh, hey, Phil, birds across the street jamming. I said, oh, let me go check this out, man. So I ran across 7th Avenue, and I went to this, uh, this joint. It's called Arthur's Tavern. A little teeny joint, Sheridan Square. Still there, still there to this day. The bandstand was about as big as a card table. You know? A little teeny bandstand. There was a guy up there, and the piano was about this long, about two and a half octaves. The guy playing it was 90 years old, and his father was on drums. <laughs> father had a snare drum about this big, and a pair of, like, some pie plates for cymbals, man. And they were bloody awful. And there's Charlie Parker up there, and he's playing on Larry Rivers, who's a fantastic painter, but not much of a baritone saxophone player. He was with Rauschenberg and Pollock and all the cats that were changing the, the, the world of art. I mean, the arts were bubbling in these days. And uh, I could see that Mr. Parker was having a little trouble with the baritone sax. So I said, uh, Mr. Parker, perhaps you'd like to use my alto. And he, re he remembered me from the cherry pie days, you know. I said, yeah, Phil, that'd be nice, man. So, man, I ran, ran across 7th Avenue and I got my horn, which of course was already out between sets. And I got on the bandstand and I handed it to, to Charlie Parker, you know? And we played, uh, he played. <laughs> clinics or workshops or master classes and, and after the thing is over with the, the, the kids will say oh man I wanted to ask you a question but I'm just I'm so shy I couldn't get it out you know get over it <laughs> you're gonna be a musician you can't be shy you know so I did my 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 bleeding imitation of the maestro you know I did did my best and I'd done my homework I knew long ago and far away by Jerome Kern I knew the changes I knew I knew what was happening with the song, and I played as good as I could. And Bird looked over and came close to me and said, Sounds real good, Phil. <sighs> Be still, my heart. <laughs> I mean, you have no idea. I can still hear those words. Actually. Sounds real good, Phil. <sighs> this time I levitated over 7th Avenue. <laughs> my feet did not touch the ground. And I played the bejesus out of Harlem Nocturne. <laughs> I stopped looking for the magic mouthpiece, the magic reed, the magic ligature, the magic strap, the magic horn. You know what I started to do? Practice. <laughs> it's the greatest music lesson I ever had. You know? 
I mean, it's not the equipment. You play it. It don't play you, baby. A lot of cats spend their life looking for the, the right mouthpiece, the right read. I mean, you get something that works, and then you play it. You know what I mean? Don't waste your time in the store. Beat me in the studio. Um, one rumor I'd like to put a rest to. A lot of people say, you've got Charlie, if you've got Charlie Parker's on, if you've got Charlie Parker's on. And, you know, the reason that came about was, years ago, I was married to Chan. I'm sure a lot of you know that. The bird's widow is my wife. And we were very much in love and had a wonderful family. So, you know, that's, that's why I didn't marry her because she was bird's widow. I married her because I was in love with her. Uh, one time we didn't have enough didn't have enough bread to buy groceries. And we lived in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And so I took my horn and I hocked it, got some cash, bring it home to buy to buy dinner to make sure we could live for another week. And I got a call from Joe Termini at the at the half note and he said, Phil, I need a band tonight. Can you uh, can you put something together? I said, sure, you know. And I said to Chan, I said, I'm going to have to use Bird's King tonight. The king, you know, it belonged to Chan. It was in the family. It was not my horn. But since I hocked my horn, I was going to borrow Bird's, Bird's horn, the one that said Charlie Parker on the bell, you know, and do the first set. Then I get a draw from Joe, and I could get my horn out the next day because the king was not in great shape, you know. I mean, to me, a horn is a horn. If the guy that played it is dead, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a piece of metal. You know, I don't have any false attachment to a piece of metal. Some people do, but that's, that's, that's collectors and stuff. So I told Ross Russell that story. And when the book Bird Lives came out, it said, Phil Woods plays Charlie Parker's horn. Yeah, once. One night I played it. And, the, and this night I'm playing it, I just played the first tune, and who walks in but Charlie Mingus? And he recognized the horn. And he made a point of walking right up to the bandstand, looking at the horn and looking where it said Charlie Parker, and then looking at me with a look of disdain, you know what I mean? I'm just trying to support Bird's kids, man. I could use some some help here, you know, instead of looking at me like I'm a, a grave robber, you know what I mean? And that, that, that really hurt me. So for years, I was vociferously denying the fact that I don't have Charlie Parker's horn, you know. I have my own saxophone, thank you. I have his wife, but I have my own horn, you know what I mean? I mean, I try to make it light and happy and all that. And uh, kept an, I mean, I, for years and years and years. Now, before Chan died, and this is about, what, maybe 10 years ago, she sold the Grafton, the white plastic horn that Bird used, sold it to the Kansas City Jazz Society for $126,000. After that, when people say, do you have Charlie Parker's horn? I'd say, I only have a few left. Would you, would you like to buy one? Would you like to buy one? They're, they're moving fast. I've got a couple left for you, though. I'll make a nice price. <laughs> and now when they ask me that, I say, no, I'm playing Bird's Yamaha. <laughs> Which I love, by the way. But you don't need a commercial to know the 82Z is the best horn on the planet, huh? So with all of that said, I'd like to introduce Eric Doney, my pianist. Maybe we'll play a tune. Thank you, John Whitman. The Yamaha guys treat, treat their artists right. All right, maestro.